Thank you for joining us on The Key, Inside Higher Ed's News and Analysis podcast. We have a special episode today in collaboration with Times Higher Education's Campus podcast. Campus is a place where educators can learn, share, and connect with colleagues at colleges and universities all over the world. The host, Sarah Custer, dives deep into the challenges, innovations, and opportunities that lie ahead for universities worldwide. Enjoy this episode and make sure to check out the Campus podcast. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I am Sarah Custer, your host and the editor of Campus. For this episode, I spoke with Eve Riskin, an electrical engineer and award-winning mentor. At MIT in the 1980s, Eve was one of only a handful of women on her electrical engineering and computer science course. Word on the street was that people believed she only got in because she was a girl. It's perhaps not surprising then that now, decades later, diversity and excellence are central values to her work as the Dean for Undergraduate Education at Stevens Institute of Technology. As we know, academia was designed by and for white, straight, you know, heteronormative men. And so when someone who doesn't belong to those groups um, enters academia, it can be very challenging. And they may not present as confident, in part because they may have experienced, you know, years of microaggressions or macroaggressions. Um, and that can have a number on your confidence, speaking from personal experience. In this episode, Eve talks with us about the power of mentorship, how our definition of excellence needs to be broadened, and what she, as an electrical engineer and computer scientist, thinks about the emergence of generative AI. Thanks to Stevens Institute of Technology for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Stevens is the most recent addition to the Campus Plus network of institutions. If you'd like to know more about that group, visit timeshighereducation.com forward slash campus. Hi, Eve. Thank you so much for joining us on the Times Higher Education podcast today. Welcome. Thank you, Sarah. It's really nice to be here. Eve, uh, tell us who you are and where you work. I'm Dean of Undergrad Education at Stevens Institute of Technology, which is in Hoboken, New Jersey, right across the river from New York City. I've been here slightly under a year. Um, prior to that, I spent many years um, at the University of Washington. I'm a professor of electrical and computer engineering. Um, and at UW, I led our advanced program for women faculty in science and engineering and math. Um, and I served as associate dean in the College of Engineering for 15 years. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I'm actually from New Jersey. Um, I love Stevens. I think it's an amazing institution. It gives a wonderful education to our students. Um, and so it's been a lovely transition. And is it nice to be back on home turf? Oh, very much so. Um, my mom just turned 90. She lives just slightly over an hour away. And so I'm getting to spend time with her. And, you know, no matter, I spent almost four decades on the West Coast and I am not a West Coast person. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're back in, in a com comfortable waters, let's say. Thank you. Um, you have had a, a very long and distinguished career in higher education, Eve, and I want to dig into that a little bit. And my first question for you is, um, back in 2020, back two years ago, three years ago in 2020, uh, you received the Presidential Award for Excellence in Science, Mathematics, and Engineering Mentoring. Um, what was that like? Thank you um, for mentioning that. I mean, it was a huge honor. It's probably the, the honor 
of which I'm most proud um, in my career. Um, sadly, I was unable to go to the award ceremony because I came down with COVID, um, oh. but they have kindly agreed to let me come to the next ceremony whenever it happens to be. Um, it's this wonderful program to recognize people who are really doing the work in our country to mentor um, the next generations of STEM students, particularly those from groups that have not participated fully in STEM. So um, historically minoritized groups, women, people with disabilities. Um, and I had successfully nominated three people um, in the 2000s for this award, people who were really important to me. And so to um, be awarded it myself was a huge honor. Um, I, I just I wanted to call a shout out to my PhD advisor, whose name is Bob Gray. Um, he won in 2002, um, and the narrative really wrote itself because we, we showed how um, in, as, as of 2002, he alone had supervised the dissertations of 14% of the women getting PhDs in electrical engineering from Stanford in its history. Um, and wow. that faculty is probably 80 plus faculty. So this one person who was way ahead of his time understanding the challenges of women in electrical engineering had a disproportionate impact you know, on, on the field. And many of us have gone on to become faculty. So Bob Gray you know, really has helped change um, academia. I'm very thankful. I mean, that story just highlights how important mentoring is in a, an academic's career, full stop, but especially in um, bringing forward uh, the academics who are less represented in specific fields, be it by gender, class, race, what have you. What sorts of um, maybe two or three tips would you give to your colleagues about how to be an, an award-winning mentor? Thank you. I love that question. I This is something I like to say is I believe that people sometimes confuse confidence for talent. Um, and, uh, you know, as we know, academia was designed by and for white, straight, um, norm, you know, heteronormative men. And so when someone who doesn't belong to those groups um, enters academia, it can be very challenging and they may not present as confident in part because they may have experienced, you know, years of microaggressions or macroaggressions. Um, and that can have a number on your confidence, speaking from personal experience. But if you give someone an opportunity, um, they may really take it and run. I, I had been basically turned down by two previous professors to work with them, even though I had the NSF graduate fellowship, so I had funding. Um, but you know, it, it's up to the faculty uh, what students with whom they want to work. And so when I went to my advisor, I was pretty beaten down, but he said yes. And I have never worked that hard in my life as I did when I was doing my PhD. I was just so thankful. Um, and I saw that with some of the um, women, I call them my academic younger sisters, some of them who came after me too, like the word got out on the street that Bob Gray was a good faculty member for women and they would come and you know, they said he worked in vector quantization. We didn't know what vector quantization was, but we wanted to work with them. So I think that message is most important and the message I would give to students is honestly, the faculty member is much more important with, than the topic. You can learn a new topic. Don't, you don't necessarily have to hold on to the topic of research you did as an undergrad. There's a world out there and the person who is your faculty member is, is most important. 
in my opinion. It's probably clear to everybody watching this or listening to this that you are a, a diversity champion, and that's certainly evidenced in the work that you're doing at University of Washington. Um, tell me a little bit about how you, well, what barriers you see specifically to enrolling more diverse students into higher education? Okay, well, certainly um, K-12 system is an issue in that, um, you know, people say opportunity is not distributed uniformly across zip codes, whereas talent is. Um, and so when a student comes to the university, if they happen to go to a public school that was in an underserved or high poverty district, they may not arrive ready for calculus. That doesn't mean they couldn't be fantastic at STEM, but you need to be student ready. We can't, we can't, you know, there are fewer students going to college and we can't assume that students are going to be university ready. And I think the STEM fields have made the mistake of assuming that if a student, if they aren't ready to get on your hamster wheel at whatever speed you're pumping at, couldn't be a fantastic engineer. And that I think is so important. So um, Stevens has programs, you know, we have a lovely program called the STEP program, which takes students again, who may not have had the opportunities or the rigorous education that one might get at, you know, either a really privileged public school or even more so a private school and gives them a bridge program in the summer before they start in the extra support that they need to be successful. Um, when I was at the University of Washington, we adapted a program from the University of Colorado at Boulder that they called the Goldshirt Program. We called it STARS, which you know, of course is a tortured acronym. Um, and we gave the students an extra year up front to really become ready for the rigors of engineering and computer science. Later, it became a two-year program. The expectation is the students will be there for five years um, but what I like to say is what's an extra year when you're talking about a 40-year career in STEM? And what was fantastic is, you know, when I wrote the proposal, or we wrote the proposal, I was hoping the students would get their degrees, but then we hired this amazing person named Sonia Cunningham, who's now at Cornell Engineering as the director of their diversity programs in engineering. And she intuitively knew what the students needed and she had extremely high expectations. Students will meet the bar. Um, and so after about a year with Sonia, the students started, started outperforming their peers in calculus, later computer science, which was kind of the holy grail at UW. Um, and I'm very proud over the first five cohorts of STARS, 88% graduated from UW within six years, whereas overall um, UW has an 83% six-year graduation rate. The students were routinely making the dean's list, so it was it was really, really gratifying to watch. Mm -hmm. Those are phenomenal success rates, and uh, it sounds like a really successful uh, bridging program to get high schoolers more up to speed, or as you, you said, kind of on the hamster wheel or perhaps putting the hamster wheel at a pace that they can jump on it. Um, another part of student success in these programs is about supporting students once they actually are at the university. So are there any solutions that you have in mind to not just get the students in and get them up to a level where they can be academically successful, but anything else in that wraparound support that students need? Well, that, that is a, an extremely important question. Um, and we I had a hosted a workshop last year to spread the red shirt model. And one of the participants said, stars fills all the gaps. 
So you need to realize if you have a first-gen college student who perhaps comes from a family that you know is not um, affluent or is perhaps living in high poverty, we had students um, in STARS who came from migrant families. So it's hard to, for me to imagine because my family had gone to college. So one um, problem can be enough to take the student off out of academia. Right. Um, do they, you know, we had students who were hungry. Um, did their iPhone break? Did they fail their first calculus test? So it's really important to recognize these um, signs and then intervene um, and make sure they get the support and the resources that they need. And you have to understand these students were the top in their high schools, you know, but that you know that high school is not the same as the Lawrenceville school where my brother went, and so um, it. You just have to be there. You have to support the whole student. So the programs are not cheap. Um, and, and this work is one student at a time. But if you can get the student to where they really have figured out how to succeed in your system, they can go on and become amazing leaders um, and amazing engineers and scientists. And we really badly need their talent in our workforce and in academia. So I personally believe the cost is worth it. You mentioned, um, I think it was a STEPS initiative at Stevens, but there's another one called ACES. Tell us about ACES. So ACES is uh, more, and I have not worked much with ACES, so let me leave it, you know, let, let me call it, let's qualify that, but um, sure. it's doing an important role of bringing students before college to Stevens in the summer where they can attend pre-college programs for free um, and then um, they can get scholarships if they enroll here. So this is important to, you know, again, build up interest, help students become comfortable at the university before they enroll because a lot, of, again, about student success is the sense of belonging. How do you feel? Do you feel like you will succeed? Um, and so that kind of early um, outreach and connection is really important. I mean, in some sense, it's important to imprint upon the student that here is a university. We, Stevens, we are here for you. We are so committed to your success that if you enroll here, we will go to the ends of the earth to help you succeed. And, and one thing I've been really impressed with when, since I got here is that the staff in the office where I work, the undergrad, the Office of Undergraduate Academics, the staff is tracking every single student. Every student who um, doesn't go to class, uh, the faculty files something called an early warning report and then the, the assistant deans reach out. We have support if a student has been struggling academically. Um, you know, there's a lot of connection with the students. There's a very strong, terrific, um, counseling and psychological services program led by Dr. Eric Rose. So we are highly committed to each student's success. And in this past year, in fact, 97% uh, of our students who enrolled in fall 22 are, you know, on the books of coming back in 23. So 97% is, is re a high retention rate. I'd love to see 100 because when somebody leaves, it's painful. And so it's important to try our best so that every student succeeds. But, but you know, 97 is, is so far the highest to date. So we've, we've spoken a little bit about getting, uh, reaching out to underrepresented student groups to get them more involved in the STEM subjects. Let's switch over to, to faculty now. And I know that at Stevens, there are just under 30% of your faculty are female um, and just 2% are from minority backgrounds. 
what sorts of plans does the institution have to uh, improve the diversity of the faculty at the institution? And we are very committed to um, diversifying our faculty further. It's uh, prominent in our new strategic plan. Um, I will say 30% women faculty is, is a high number for a tech institution. Um, the American Society of Engineering Education reported that um, engineering faculty were 19.2% women in 2021. So we are outperforming um, engineering. Now we do have faculty both in the School of Business and the School of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences. So it's a little apples to crab apples um, comparison. Um, but we have a strong DEI um, program in the president's office. So our colleagues, um, Susan Metz and Dr. Valerie Guerrero Williamson, um, Williamson run um, you know diversity uh, education with all the search committees so that people learn about implicit bias. Um, and I think it's really important, and I did some of this work um, at my previous institution, is to recognize that excellence is a very broad definition. If we just hire someone because they have the highest number of science papers that they published as a graduate student, we may leave out the fact that they might be not the best teacher. They may not be a great citizen. Um, they might be a terrible mentor or a terrible faculty uh, advisor for their graduate students. Well, that's a problem. Um, and so I, I'm happy to say that you know the criteria by which we evaluate faculty are more more broad than you know when I was on the market and and that is a way I think to diversify our faculty is to recognize you know leadership potential is critical that was never discussed when I was starting out um, communication skills and in citizenship and teaching and fabulous research and honestly impactful research does involve very much excellent communication. So I think, you know, again, making sure that search committees are aware of some of the biases we may revert to, um, especially if we're reviewing uh, dossiers quickly, um, and then putting some checks and balances in the process. These kinds of, um, you know, uh, motivate, these kinds of efforts can lead to much more broad um, uh, hiring. And in my last year at my previous institution, I was on faculty search. Um, and in, for the first time in history, we did hire two black women faculty. So I was really, really the first thrilled time in with history, that. In, in yes, the was, engineering faculty. It, sorry, in electrical and computer engineering. There had okay. been some in other departments, sure. but some of the things sure. that I, I would go around and, and point out was that um, the, the, we had previously made offers to black faculty but we didn't get them. One went to Harvard, one went to Stanford. And I would point out, um, we are making offers to people who are white or Asian who don't get offers from Harvard or Stanford. What does that mean? Why is that? And I was kind of loud and I probably uh, annoyed a few people, but I felt it was really important to point out that it's not okay for the bar to go up if you're hiring someone who isn't a white straight male. And I think, if if we're not careful it can happen and it's not explicit it's it's quiet but it happens so you have to listen really carefully in the conversations and that's also why it's important to have diverse faculty and our allies male wonderful male allies um, people you know who are from majority groups they are critical to this work i'm going to ask you the the same question that i asked about students once you get them on campus uh, what what how do institutions need to respond to having a more diverse faculty because 
as you say, it's it's allies' responsibility. It's people from majority groups' responsibility to speak up for these people and make sure that they get hired, but then also making them feel that they belong and that it's a place where they can thrive. For sure, retention is critical. Um, and I think in the past, perhaps um, institutions did hire people and then you know said, okay, good luck. You know, certainly when I started decades ago, it was very sink or swim, um, and I was fortunate. You know. It took me, it took me a couple years till like when I realized, okay, I'm going to be able to make it. But I tell you, the first year and a half were extremely difficult, um, and so this is where the beauty of the advanced program comes in. So it's it was started in 2001 by the National Science Foundation. Um, it was a response to the MIT Women Faculty Study of 1999. Um, I actually just listened to the book called The Exceptions, which is a 2023 book by Kate Zernike. Um, who looked back at the whole process. It was, um, in, you know, focused most on um, Dr. Nancy Hopkins. Some of the stories were harrowing, like I had to stop listening for a while because I was, you know, walking and listening on my phone and starting, I was about to scream at people. Um, but advanced- Can you just it, give it, us a, a quick synopsis for anybody who isn't familiar with that story okay. from MIT? Well, the, the thing that really got to me the most was that she had started an intro biology course um, and then later two male faculty basically got the then department chair to take the course away from her so that they could teach it and they could write a textbook and they could start a company based on her intellectual property. And they felt totally um, empowered to do this. It was mind blowing. Obviously it's different now, thank goodness, but actually I went to MIT in the early 80s and it was, I'll just say it was harrowing. It's harrowing so because it's you were probably the only uh, one of a handful of women who was probably studying computer science at the time. Oh, electrical engineering, but electrical engineering and computer science were joined. MIT was, you know, perhaps one in four of the undergraduates were women, one in three. I don't know the exact data, but the word on the street was, and I'm quoting someone I won't name, you got in because you were a girl. He didn't even use the word woman. Um, and so it, it, that kind of messaging was very toxic. Um, I came from a high school where for whatever reason, um, it, like the physics was terrible. Um, the chemistry, when I finally switched into intro chemistry after two weeks, they had done more than an entire year of Lawrence High School chemistry. Um, so I was able to do well in calculus because I had taken calculus at what was called Writer College, now it's called Writer University. Um, but I wasn't as prepared as some of the students, you know, from Stuyvesant High School. Um, but once I managed to learn what I didn't know, I did very well. Um, but, but that underlying message is not helpful. And so sure. as far as your back to your retention question, it was retention about yeah. faculty. Um, it's really important for people from underrepresented groups to have a safe person. So advance was about not, you know, why aren't women doing well? In the past, the belief was, well, there's something wrong with the women. So the NSF would make small grants to women with the hope that let's fix the women to be more like men. And it, they realized, and especially the MIT study showed it, the institutions were what needed fixing. And so they made large grants, it was almost 4 million to individual institutions to examine their policies, practices, and procedures 
to see what could be holding women back. And so University of Washington, we got a grant in the first round in 2001. RPI was one of my mentors, the late Denise Denton, who was the first woman ever in history to lead an R1 College of Engineering in UW. Um, she, her story had a, a tragic ending, um, but but we had the resources to you know pay for some of my time um, and to get a full-time staff member, Dr. Joyce Yen, to work with our department chairs to help them understand how to do their jobs better. And we would weave the diversity thread into the narrative, but we base, we focus on issues that all chairs need to support all faculty. And I, again, did that work for 20 years. I helped a man get a tenure clock extension when his then chair said, men don't need tenure clock extensions. This man needed it. And, and in his last year, he got a prestigious NSF career award. Um, he published a fabulous paper that was on the cover of a journal. Um, so this kind of work when you support the whole faculty doesn't just help women or, or minoritized faculty, it helps all faculty. And so, you know, it's about the climate or the culture. It's about making not just students, but the faculty need to feel like they belong and they can be successful and you're there for them. They're people. So investing in this is really the the tide that ra that raises all boats. Whenever you invest in this, creating this culture that you said, this sort of environment that's supportive, everybody benefits it, not just people from minoritized backgrounds or women. Exactly what you said. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you. Well, well, I was just summarizing what you said. You said it much more, <laughs> much more eloquently than I did. Um, Eve, I would be remiss for having an electrical engineer on the podcast slash computer scientist, which I keep confusing with what your actual uh, discipline is, but an electrical engineer. I must ask you, as now uh, the Dean for Undergraduate Education at Stevens Institute, how are you thinking about artificial intelligence? Thank you for that question. Um, in fact, I am leading a small committee on how should Stevens adapt in the light of these chatbots that have, you know, proliferated proliferated, come on the market so much in the last less than a year. Um, so I'm leading a committee. There's just five of us. I like small committees because we're nimble. Um, so we have our teaching and learning director, Ron Silvis. We have um, our lead in the our associate dean from humanities, arts, and social sciences who lead, you know, has built up their fantastic writing program and their um, freshman curriculum. Our students spend a year taking courses on inquiry, um, writing, thinking, critical thinking. Um, it's important that they learn computational literacy. Um, so I'm really thrilled with how, how fantastic the education is and how integrated writing and communication are throughout our program. Um, so the questions we started with were, we have a very strong honor code here, which I love, and it's run by the students. Um, and occasionally students you know, unfortunately, um, make not make choices that aren't the best. And so the question originally started with, well, how might we amend our honor code in light of the chatbots? So the first thing I did was I got a young faculty to ask ChatGPT how we should amend our honor code in light of ChatGPT. And I tell you, what came out wasn't bad. It was a little more onerous. Um, but instead, what we're going to do likely is come up with short guides, one for faculty and one for students. So for faculty, um, you know, back in the day when calculators came on the market, and I remember my brother had a $400 HP calculator in the 70s, 
um, that would probably cost you, you know, four ninety nine now. Um, people worried that now no kids aren't going to learn math because they have a calculator. I will say I did once see at the Jersey Shore a kid pull out a calculator to multiply by 10. I was kind of horrified. Um, but with calculators and computers, we have been able to you know, ask much more uh, in-depth uh, mathematical and computational questions over the years. So how can we harness chatbots to go more deeply into education? And so you know, there are sample questions. One of our um, business professors, um, Professor Elaine Henry, asked a question in accounting using chatbots. So one idea is have a student uh, ask the chatbot five times in a row the same question because the problem is you're going to get a different response because it's just pulling information off the web and then help your students learning by making them say what's wrong with the responses. And if they don't understand the question or the material, then they're not going to learn. So that's an idea. Um, we're, I'm, we're also looking, of course, at other universities, you can't open up Inside Higher Ed without seeing a chatbot article, as you know. Um, I'm going on a tomorrow to a webinar offered at Montclair State University. The, they kindly let me um, in, join, and they've developed a lot of resources around, um, you know, AI and in education. So I don't. I think that it's helpful for faculty to ask the students to self-identify, I used a chatbot in this response or not. Faculty are welcome to say you can't use AI. It's, it's academic freedom, it's up to the faculty. I don't think that it's that helpful for faculty to use, you know, the turn it in, you know, chat GBT detector, because even they say it has, you know, they have low com confidence if they, it's like under 20% of the material was generated by the chatbot. So I don't think we want to be policing this. I think we want our students to be honest and, you know, and we as faculty need to, you know, figure out how we can harness this to ask better questions and, and deepen their learning. What we don't want, and, and um, Professor McBrien, you know, the writing um, lead, we don't want our students to skip writing. That is not helpful. You know, they, we need to learn to write. And so, you know, ideas are the chatbot can give you a fantastic first draft, which could be especially helpful if, you know, if English isn't your first language. And then the writing is in coming to, you know, find the mistakes, learn to improve the language, etc. So it's a work in progress. Thank you for that question. And how I know that you are very new to Stevens, but I'm curious to know how um, faculty are responding to this. I imagine that their level of comfort and um, prowess with ChatGPT probably might not even be as high as their students. Uh, what what sorts of supports are in place to kind of support them as they're going along and kind of learning this with their students, but then also being prepared for whatever's coming next, which inevitably is going to come even faster than ChatGPT came at us. So I think that's an excellent teaching and learning question, and that's why Ron Silvis is on our committee. I will say some of our faculty are already way ahead of the curve. There was a recent um, Prism. Uh, article about chatbots in the you know summer issue and the lead people were Stevens people so um, Carlo and Annie and they're coming to our meeting on Friday so they're already using it in their class again we saw it in business they're using it in um, chemistry and computational biology um, so I believe our faculty are really ahead of the curve and I'm learning from them um, in my role 
So, but I also then trust Ron's um, teaching and learning center will also be, you know, helping in addition to our, you know, smaller efforts with our tag team committee. Sounds like you're starting off on the right foot. Eve, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It's been lovely speaking with you about diversity in higher education, your own experience being a woman in the field of electrical engineering and hearing some of your great ideas on, on how to tackle some of these challenges. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. It's been really nice to meet with you this morning. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.